it's the age-old question. What is dark matter? Like, is it some kind of particle that doesn't interact with regular matter except for gravity? Is it that we just don't understand gravity at the largest scales? If it is a particle, what kind of particle is it? And astronomers have proposed a lot of different kinds of particles, very massive particles, very light particles. And there's one class of particles called axions that have sort of more behavior like light, but also matter and astronomers have been looking for evidence for this. So my guest today is Dr. Amrith Alfred, who is a PhD student at the University of Hong Kong. Actually, he just got his doctorate. So I guess post doc at University of Hong Kong, we talk about the observations that he studied in a gravitational lens that hints that maybe the axion is the right explanation for dark matter. And then we also just talk a lot about gravitational lenses, because I am so fascinated by these and how they work as natural telescope lenses. You've given me a lot of questions, and I was able to pass a lot of those questions along to Amrith. So enjoy this interview with Dr. Amrith Alfred. And I gotta say that is the coolest recording setup I have ever oh. had talking oh, yeah? to an astrophysicist. This is the oh, like, this you. is the first time someone comes <laughs> prepared with a condenser microphone, uh, a, you know, nice set of headsets. Uh, this is this is the best. I'm I'm really thank honored. you, thank you. Okay, now you know I I I do some streaming on my own time, so uh, I had to upgrade. You know, slowly get the decent equipment at least. Yeah, yeah. I think that's my well, new rule. I'm only going to talk to yeah. scientists who are also <laughs> video game streamers and professional well, you should. You know, that probably players. raises right. <laughs> probably raises the bar. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you're going to get good audio and video. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've already gone through all of the hassle of getting your exactly. setup done, and right. and then we can talk about the science. So that's it. Uh, yeah, no more <laughs> of the people always give me a hard time. They're like, "Oh, the audio quality of your oh. guests is so uh -huh. mediocre." I'm like, "Oh, I like," but they were so interesting. But mm. um, all right, so that's, let's talk about gravitational true. lenses. Let's, so let's, I want to start yeah. with the big the big news and the reason that I that I reached out. So you put you and your team put out a paper. Um, picked up by some pretty big places. Um, what did you, what was the, the, I guess, the discovery that you are proposing in your paper? Well, so conventionally, dark matter, people treat it as, you know, it's made of uh, massive particles. And that's sort of the standard uh, paradigm. And then there's this alternative model called wave dark matter, which where the dark matter is just made of, very light particles. That's really the, the uh, main difference. And then, you know, there's a lot of other models because the standard paradigm ran into a couple of issues, uh, both in particle physics and astrophysics, right? There's been decades of searches and really billions of dollars of funding looking for these massive particles. People call them WIMPs uh, for weakly interacting massive particles. And we haven't really found any. So there's, there's a lot of motivation to consider other ideas. And and so, sorry, yeah. just to, to interrupt. So like this, what is the difference? I mean, like, I mean, I think we can kind of wrap our heads around the idea of a bunch of particles that are not interacting with regular matter. I mean, that's already pretty hard. But what is this idea of like wave based dark well, matter? Right, right. Well, it's just because the particle is so light, right? And then uh I'm sure you've heard about, you know, wave particle duality, right? Everything, you know, everything is actually a wave as well or a particle. Um, and then this wave behavior becomes stronger the lighter you get, 
So very light particles are going to have very large wavelengths. We call this the de Broglie wavelength after Louis de Broglie. And um, so because these wave, you know, the, the candidate particle for wave dark matter is so light, they're ultra light particles, their wavelength is so large that on astrophysical scales, they kind of behave like waves. They exhibit wave-like properties, kind of like, you know, interference patterns and stuff like that, like waves on a beach. So um, theoretically, like, you, you know, could you could throw streams of dark matter particles and they would interfere through interference patterns like photons. Right, right. Yeah. You know, so on, on large scales like galaxies and galaxy clusters, they it's kind of like ripples in a pond. They have these they interact with each other. They have these interference patterns. And then, you know, every interference pattern, whenever that happens, there's constructive, destructive interference. Right. right. Um, so you get all these funky behavior, which you wouldn't get with uh, massive particles. They just wouldn't show this kind of thing. But to all other purposes, it still behaves the same as the prep, you know, the, you know, that it is cold, that yeah, it yeah. doesn't, you know, has a small cross section, doesn't mm -hmm. interact with itself or regular matter right, through anything right. but gravity. Yeah, no, that's uh, so that's important. And, uh, you know, there are still people who work on hot dark matter, warm dark matter, right, the, the three classes. And uh, it's just that astrophysical observations prefer dark matter to be cold. It's not to say that all of it's cold, you know, some of it might be warm, some and even less hot, maybe. Uh, but, you know, looking at the large scale structure of the universe, and then you compare it with simulations, what it tells you is that probably dark matter needs to be cold. Uh, and slowly moving and then so you know wave dark matter and then massive particle dark matter they're they're still cold um, this is important you need to you know there's like primary astrophysical observations that you need to reproduce if you want to consider that model you know seriously um, and the two of these main ones there's there's a couple but the two main ones are you need to be able to reproduce the large-scale structure of the universe right so the all the structure we see like the cosmic web uh, the second is you need to be able to reproduce the cosmic microwave background, the CMB. And then right. those two, you know, you need in any kind of cosmological model. Uh, and then wave dark matter, as well as the, you know, standard dark matter, um, they both do this. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so what is the observation then that you were making? Uh, well, we, we, you know, we didn't actually uh, make the observations ourselves. We used data from from pre from a previous team that did it from previous work um so this has never been done before really where people test dark matter models with gravitational lensing when it comes to um uh, lensing of quasars and quasars are just distant bright galaxies right and um historically for al almost two decades now astronomy and lensing has had this problem called lensing anomalies where when you look at lensed images of very distant galaxies or quasars, uh, and then you try to reproduce the brightnesses of those images, you, what we find is that standard dark matter models can't reproduce these brightnesses more often than not. Hmm, um, interesting. So, so yeah, in this case, yeah. like you've got a galaxy cluster foreground, and then you've got some yeah, right. quasar in the background, and the galaxy cluster is, is acting as a lens for the quasar. Yeah. Right. And uh, you actually have a galaxy as the lens, typically. Okay. Uh, okay. Sure. Ga yeah, galaxy yeah. is a lens. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and 
And so the brightness that you're getting of this lensed quasar doesn't match up with what the predictions should be. Right. Right. And Pretty is much. that because it's like there's there you need more mass in the lensed galaxy or less mass? We we don't know. Uh, it, you can't tell. Yeah. Uh, you can't mm. tell. Like it, it doesn't tell you. Um, and then people have tried uh, invoking different explanations to you know, try and circumvent this problem. And then they've kept um, running into a wall where none of these explanations seem to, right. you know, sometimes these explanations help resolve the problem, but uh, more often than not, they don't. It's dust, um, obviously, but. Well, yeah, sure, it's dust. <laughs> it's um, always dust. Like that's it's always, it's always dust, dust, right? Yeah, yeah. you know, dust, full stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, people people try adding in these um, sub-halos, which are sort of like mini galaxies uh, and then the standard cold dark matter paradigm predicts um, these kinds of invisible galaxies well invisible um, halos of dark matter is just I don't know why people use the word halos in in, in the field um, you know halos tip if you, if you told a stranger halo it's like a ring on your head right like angels have halos but when astronomers use halo it's it's just a spherical cloud of, of dark matter so they say dark matter halo it's just you know a blob of dark matter it's very misleading. Um, you know, I hope people listening, they, I, I'm saying this because people listening are like, why is there a ring of dark matter? But you know, it's just a, it's a cloud, a spherical cloud. Um, and then, yeah, the standard theory simulations predict many of these smaller halos, sort of like baby halos around the parent halo. Uh, and, you know, we don't see these in observations. Um, it's one of the problems called the missing satellite problem, uh, which is one of the things that plagues the standard paradigm. Uh, you know, around our Milky Way, our, around our galaxy, simulations predict about more than hundreds of satellite galaxies, but we only see a few tens. Um, so there's a large discrepancy there. And um, people tried to use these baby halos, sub-halos, to see whether that could help resolve these lensing anomalies. And um, sometimes it can, uh, but then in sometimes it can't. Um, yeah. And I know, I know it is tricky because in some cases, if you do have like a baby halo and it has primarily dark matter and no stars, it's really hard to see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't right. know if you saw uh, some yeah. Chinese scientists it mm -hmm. found a uh, dark matter satellite galaxy to the Milky Way a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. um, relatively close. So they're out there. They do exist. Right, but, right, but yeah, but not at the quantity that you would be expecting. Yeah, 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 and you know, I, you know, I'll, I'll probably get a lot of flack for this from the uh, the standard cold dark matter people, but yeah, they're not uh, listening. Don't worry about it. Yeah, okay, they're not going to be listening, right? It's yeah. the cool people listening. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, no, you know, because it it is a topic of debate. I'm not saying that you know it's guaranteed hundred percent, but it's definitely a topic of strong debate, and especially in the past, it was much more severe, but. Um, nowadays, you know, some people say that, okay, it's not really a problem. It's just that our simulations suck. Uh, and then if we have better simulations, then this isn't really a problem. And sure, it might be the case, uh, but it's it's just definitely a topic of hot debate, um, you know, because there's other issues as well, uh, yeah. apart from this missing satellite thing. So um, you looked at these yeah. lens quasars and and what were you hoping to see? Well, so, you know, I didn't tell you this, but... All this time, people were finding brightness anomalies because you couldn't reproduce the brightnesses. Mm -hmm. But more recent observations, which um, with much higher resolution, 
uh, with radio telescopes. Um, you know, it's called VLBI, very long baseline interferometry. Um, when you use these, you know, the resolution you get is orders of magnitudes higher than the Hubble Space Telescope, which is, you know, like the holy grail for astronomers. Well, now the JWST in infrared. Um, and then what, what we found is, you know, there's these brightness and position anomalies, that what people found. Um, and then we were like, you know, look, uh, wave dark matter, it has this wave-like behavior, right? And then one of the defining characteristics is that it produces this kind of um, interference pattern, which leaves behind a lot of uh, structure in the mass. So it's not like smoothly distributed, but there's a lot of blobs of mass um, that are more dense and less dense uh, than the average density. So you might want to picture it like, uh, I don't know, when waves crash, crash on the beach, like the froth uh, that forms, you know, um, it's sort of like that. It's like very, a lot of st structure going on. And then this is a very unique prediction. You can't, it's not the same thing as adding in these baby halos because the baby halos are just adding in mass, right? But this wave dark matter, you know, it's going to have negative um, fluctuations as well. And so is this like structure in the, like the galaxy itself because of the effect of the dark matter? Or is this purely something that you're seeing in the lens? Like, is this, this is it right, structure right. actually there around the galaxy? Yeah. So the first time, you know, we found this out was in 2014. Uh, that was the first time that full simulations of wave dark matter were done, also by one of our collaborators. And turns out every galaxy um, has this kind of structure. Uh, it has this wave-like behavior, you know, taking over and this kind of interference pattern, leaving behind this rich, very rich structure. Uh, and then it happens in galaxy clusters as well. So basically every dark matter halo. Right, yeah. okay. And so w w yeah. when you look at a gravitational lens, where is this, you know, I mean, I think about things like, for example, astronomers are able to see exoplanets around other stars just by using gravitational microlensing. Yeah. yeah. It's such right. a sensitive technique. Yeah. Yeah. And is that, is that right. sort of what's doing the heavy lifting here is the, is the lens itself? Um, well, yeah, the, you know, the lens is what's important here. Definitely. You know, because what happens to the lensed images lets us probe what's going on in the lens. Uh, and that's why we can infer something about the dark matter distribution. Uh, in this case, it's not microlensing because it's a strongly lensed images. So it's strong lensing. So you, you know, you, especially in the radio, you even see resolved images. So you don't just see blobs, but the, the particular object we're looking at, it's, um, it's a very, it's, you know, it's an interesting object. It's, it's a quasar. So it has a, a central core of the, of the galaxy, which is imaged only in optical with the Hubble Space Telescope. But then it has two radio jets on either side, kind of, you know, going out, 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 of, the, out of the center. And then that's imaged only in radio. And then this jet, you know, it has, it has a lot of structure. It's actually incredible when you see it, because there's only a handful of these radio lenses. You know, you could literally count them on like one hand. Um, so it's very rare. People, it's, it's very rare. So that's something we try to emphasize in our work. Uh, we're like, look, you need, if you, if you can get radio imaging of lenses, you're going to be able to do incredible stuff with it. Um, so this, yeah, this thing is really, really interesting, you know, a central core and then a radio jet coming out of it. And then all of those provide very rich constraints um, that you could never really do before in lens modeling. 
And so if this is true and what you're seeing is, is correct, what are the implications for cosmology? Well, you know, it, this is this what what this would tell us is that probably it's time to take um, you know the candidate particle for wave dark matter is called axions. Mm-hmm. It's just the uh, the technical term. You know, fun fact: this people, you know, most people don't know why it's called axions. Do you know why it's called axions? No, I don't. An axion, yeah. Well, so the person who proposed this uh, was Frank Wilczek. So he's the uh, Nobel Prize laureate in 2006. Um, And then the axion, it wasn't just proposed as a candidate for dark matter. It was proposed for solving other problems in physics, uh, in theoretical physics as well. And then um, he said, look, it uh, cleans up a few problems in physics. And then he, he was in his kitchen. And then there's this detergent called axion. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's like a no. cleaning detergent. It's it's a company. Yeah. Right? And then he saw it and he said, look, I'm just going to name it Axion. So that's where that's where the name comes from. That's amazing. <laughs> Physicists right. are, you know, sometimes they have uh, questionable names, but sometimes they're they're pretty funny. I think it's better um, than a backronym. So okay. I think yeah. it's all right, you know. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. right. And so like a lot of the people who are watching this or listening to this, they're familiar with the term Axion, mm. but... But essentially what you're saying is, is that of all of the proposed explanations for dark matter, if you are seeing these, these structures in the, in the lens are, are correct, then yeah. the axion is the most likely candidate for dark matter. Right. Or something right. like it. Um, some, you know, or, or something <clears throat> like it. That, that's what this particular, um, these anomalies tell us. And that, that's something, you know, it's very interesting because you could never really do that before. Um, but so we're very careful to, you know, say that um, lens models can all, always be more perfect. Like they can be, they can always be better. Uh, we're not really capturing the lens, you know, realistically, you know, because we're limited by the models we have and what, how best we can represent a galaxy. So there's still some additional work that needs to be done, which is what we're hoping to do in research um, in some of the research that we have planned, you know, we want to take, we want to try to capture the galaxy as, as best as possible in simulations. Um, but, you know, assuming all of that wouldn't make a big difference, then if axions were the true particle, you know, for dark matter, then that, that's going to have cosmological implications as well, because there's a lot of variation, there's a lot of different predictions um, that wave dark matter, axionic dark matter would do as, as opposed to um, massive particle dark matter. So for people who, who, I mean, they're familiar with the name, what is the underlying astrophysical process that's believed to create axions? Um, the, the astrophysical process. Or the, or the particle physics. Like how do you get axions? Yeah, so there's multiple... Um, hypotheses i shouldn't use the word theories there's multiple hypotheses and on how they're formed uh and then you know there's at the axions actually span a wide range of mass uh and then what we're looking at is ultralight axions but there's also axions that are that are more heavy uh, much more heavier like orders of magnitude heavier and they they all have different purposes in particle physics um and then there's there's a lot of uh, processes like symmetry breaking in physics and uh, the particular axion that we're looking at it's it's postulated uh, in string theory 
Um, and I don't like using the word string theory yeah. because it's not a theory. I don't know what, why people use that string word. You string hypothesis. hypothesis. Yeah, it yeah. should be. You know, if you're doing science, you wouldn't call it a theory, I think. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's predicted through all these a variety of mechanisms. Um, there, there's a whole host of them. And, you know, to be honest with you, I, I couldn't tell you the details. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's in, it gets incredibly complicated, and I couldn't tell you the uh, the details on how that works. But there, are, I mean, I know there are people attempting to detect them directly. There's even like an Axion detector yeah. set up at CERN. Right, 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 right. Yeah, there's um, direct detection experiments, the same as how people were looking for wimps. Uh, but the the searches started a bit late. But um, I think you know some of the earliest searches were in the late '90s as well. Um, but there's such a large parameter space to be explored um that you know because wimps have had now a lot lots of decades to be searched for and probably presumably you'd think maybe axions would need uh, you'd need some time to to explore out the parameter space but there you know there there is there are direct detection experiments i actually went to this conference in Santander in Spain last week where people were it was just about dark matter there were still tons of people you know doing a planning projects and uh, looking, you know, direct detection experiments or even indirect detection experiments. Um, there's a lot of people working on stuff like that. Maybe not on axions. Most of the people were looking still for wimps or heavier particles, but there were there were a few. Um, so it, it's still not, you know, that popular. So we, we got a lot of pushback when we actually sent this paper, uh, when we sent this paper in. So it the paradigm still has a strong grasp on most scientists, I guess. Has the the pushback helped you strengthen your position? Um. Well, you know what my supervisor I hope, like, told me. It gives me, you pause, right? Like you got all these people going, oh, yeah, you're wrong. Yeah. yeah. And you say, yeah, and explain you know, how, and then they do, right. and then yeah. you go, hmm, am I wrong? Yeah, right. No, that, that's 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 a good question because that's what uh, science is all about, right? Uh, you want to, you know, check out all the questions, um, and then unfortunately, a lot of the pushback we got was was not really um, on the science we did. Um, you know, for example, uh, when we had to send this paper in and through the referee process, it was it was it was very painful because from one of the referees, most of the comments we got were on the introduction of the paper. Uh, so it wasn't on the science or the methodology or the results. Um, he, you know, some they they just had issues with uh, how we were phrasing things in the introduction. Uh, but that was, you know, what you do in an introduction of the paper is just a literature review, right? You don't actually say other things. So there, it's just people are willing to, um, they're not they're not willing to accept that the current paradigm has problems that can't be easily resolved. Uh, sure, you know, you can pull in a lot of magic ingredients if you want, uh, but there's problems that, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying that wave dark matter is right, you know, massive particle dark matter is wrong, right? Because you can never say that. If, and I mean, we emphasize that in the paper as well. But a lot of the pushback is kind of because people have locked in, they've kind of put all their money into that idea and they don't want to consider the, the alternative idea. So whenever we get, uh, you know, sometimes we get questions from people um, about our paper and what the issues could be. And then there's good questions like that. Like, you know, we need to do a, a more analysis um, in the future, like a better modeling of the galaxy, stuff like that. Sure, you know, that's part of science. But a lot of the pushback, yeah, it's 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 quite sad to see. 
Why are these radio lenses so rare? I mean, I know that there are dozens of Einstein rings and other really great gravitational lenses seen by Hubble. Why are the radio equivalents so hard to find? Well, they're so hard to find because we don't really know where to look. Like you'd have to first know that um, the lensed quasar you're looking at has jets in the radio, um, which which you wouldn't know beforehand. Um, and well, radio observations are expensive, I guess. Um, you need to do you know lots lots of it, and uh, it's difficult to do. You know, when I started research, I started off with um, in a, as an undergrad, I started off um, handling data from the the VLA, the very large array. Uh, and then radio, oh my God, re- dealing with radio data is, um, is crazy. Uh, I don't know if you've, you know, have some experience, you've heard someone talk about it. It's, it's incredible. The amount well, of respect I, mean, my, I have. Yeah. I mean, my perception as, you know, as an outsider, as someone reporting on this is that in the beginning, even like when I started as a journalist, like you would see pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope and there were these beautiful wide field views of the sky. Yeah, yeah. You would see stuff from... And like a telescope, you can point at the sky, take a picture, and now you've got, a, you know, a gigapixel image that you can mm. look for things mm. that are interesting in there. But with a radio right. telescope, you've got this tiny, you've got like four pixels, 10 pixels, 100 pixels at the most that you're scanning across the sky, mm. by, yeah. you know, degree, right. not even degree, arc second right. by arc second. And you're right. slowly building. And it's only been recently, like when you think about some of the telescopes like Meerkat, you're seeing larger structures because the thing can just gather more pixels right. yeah. of the sky at the right. same time. And now suddenly you're right. seeing these incredible um, yeah. uh, filament structures, structures at the center yeah. of the Milky Way. And and it gives you this glimpse that radio telescopes are about to start taking pictures of the sky that are that look like photographs in the way that Hubble and JWST and all these do, because they finally can gather a wide enough field of view, which is really tricky, right? Because like, radio telescope, you just point at one little point in the sky, <laughs> yeah. you go, you know, strength of the signal, okay, move over. Is there a signal here? Okay, move over, right? Like it's just yeah. a, a totally yeah. different world. And so I can right. see how, right. how finding these things, there isn't mm. going to be a Vera Rubin of radio telescopes for a long time. Yeah, the next uh, exciting one is the uh, square kilometer array. Yeah, that yeah. would be the big one. That's going to start finding you know, thousands of lenses, we think. Mm. Um, but yeah, you, just the precision with you know the resolution that that you can reach with um, interferometric techniques. That's the the key part, and then radio lets you do that in radio. Uh, when you use interferometry, yeah, the resolution that you can get is just incredible. You just can't get it with the non-interferometric. So, so what if you turned the Event Horizon Telescope on this lens? I have no idea. You know that the resolution of I think the the Event Horizon Telescope is uh, you know orders of magnitude even better than what you could do with the. Uh, than what has been done, I don't know. You know, you you'd start seeing crazy stuff, probably. You'd yes, it's like yes, please. Is things. the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, but you uh, think you know, like uh, do you think? Unless well, I mean, some, like make a prediction, yeah. right? Like if you took if you convinced, and obviously you know after this interview goes live, and the yeah. steering committee of the Event Horizon Telescope, now that they've right. imaged all of the black holes that they can, right. need something else to use this collaboration for, and they're gonna mm-hmm. be like, okay, fine. 
Right. Amrith wants this. Let's right. do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what would you be? What would you predict that you would see in the quasar lens if if the wave uh, dark matter is is more likely? Right. Uh, well, barring you know any technical difficulties, I I don't know whether the engineers at the Event Horizon would be like, no, no, no way. Um, you know, I, I don't know about that part. But if, yeah, if we could get an image, you would you would be seeing really any, you know, astrophysical object. Ne- you know, it's never been, it would have never been done before in history. It would be an unprecedented level of resolution. You would ma- you'd manage to resolve structures, you know, in the radio jet to such a fine precision. And if, if you know, wave dark matter was what um, the galaxy was made of, the lensing galaxy, um, these images would have variations, uh, both in brightness and position. And the kind of variations you would see, it would be determined by the uh, wavelength of the particle. So it wouldn't just be, you know, you, you can constrain the mass of the axion uh, with these things, which we can also do kind of, uh, it's just not, you know, within an order of magnitude, a few orders of magnitude. But what you could do here is, yeah, you'd be seeing effects that, you know, hell, we haven't maybe we haven't even predicted it because we don't we don't do simulations for sources that small uh, because you just yeah. never would be able to see it in the observation. But a but an astrophysical jet coming from a quasar fits the bill. Yeah. I mean, like it gets mm. more and more point sources. You get closer and closer to the source of the jet. Mm. And to to yeah. to image a gravitational lens, you're already getting the benefit of however many orders of magnitude from the magnification of the foreground galaxy. That'd be bonkers. Yeah, I mean that that would be amazing. That would yeah. be amazing. You'd be seeing a whole host of new things. You know, the apart from all these really odd things happening to the to the lensed images, uh, who knows what you know? You might be seeing some new phenomenon as well. Um, these image, the images would be jiggling about. You know, they'd be shifting in position and brightness, um, and then you'd be able to really capture all of these. And wow, the lens model that you could make with that kind of data, you could you could ru- you could rule out a lot of stuff with that that kind of data. Yeah, and I guess um, that's the question, right? It's like if you don't right. see anything interesting, right? Then you'd be able to rule out uh, wave dark matter. Yeah, uh, and that would be awesome too, because you know that's one of the good things uh, that we're proud of when we were doing research, and, and we're happy of. Um, it's it's very falsifiable, uh, because well, you know nowadays there's a lot of models going about in all of science really, where there's a ton of free parameters, and then you tune the knobs, and then you fit the data. Uh, and I don't know if you call that science. I, I don't. Right. But if and, you were able uh, to wipe out an entire field of research with one observation, you'd be okay. Well, you'd be able to sleep at night. And I'd be happy. <laughs> uh, right? Like I think this. I mean, this is the this is the thing that I think yeah. people like. If you could just like go, oh, you know what, dark matter doesn't exist at all yeah. with some yeah. series of alterations. You'd be fine oh, with that. Yeah. I, yeah, I'd be so happy. I'd be so happy because <laughs> I, you know, I think the fun part is knowing things like that. You know, where you can be like it's 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 this whole thing. It's not that. Uh, that makes it way more fun. Even if I was invested in one of these ideas, uh, but I try to. You know, stay away, have an open uh, kind of mind so that I don't get down into one idea because I, I really think that's like the killer, uh, especially if you want to have like a, if you want to be a scientist, I don't know, you can't just do this um, getting into one bandwagon. And I feel like it's a trap that you tend to fall into if you want to focus on your career well, as a scientist. What do you think causes that trap? 
Uh, I think it's uh, part of the uh, career path. Um, if you want to get, you know, I just finished my PhD like last month. If you want to get, even even if you want to get a good PhD or you want to get a good postdoc position, right? And then after a few postdocs, you probably want to apply for a faculty position. Um, you need to be probably an expert in one field nowadays. Um, back then, maybe you could, you, you know, maybe if you're, crazy enough you could be an expert in multiple fields but you need to be an expert in one field and then you know you get your faculty job you become a, a known person in the field and then now uh some 20 year old kid comes and tells you no you, you know look what you've been doing for for a few decades is wrong right uh and i think it's a very human thing to be a bit defensive um about this and so people are not willing to kind of accept and then let go and be like, look, the kid's right, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think it's part part of like a human, I don't know, a defensive thing that, that ticks off. Um, and if you if you don't jump into one of the bandwagons, then um, it's, it's going to be harder to progress your career, I, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what I've heard from other people. Um, yeah, but at the yeah. same time, you get these... You know, I think scientists love to hear these stories where after working for decades in, you know, uh, it, against the resistance, someone was able to prove that gut bacteria leads to ulcers or that uh, plate tectonics is correct or, you know, there's all of these ideas that right. that in hindsight are are accepted by the scientific community. And it, it was just a difficult Hall right. to, to get the, but, to you know that's them. it's like Einstein's relativity it wasn't really accepted you know he never won a Nobel Prize for it yeah. now if you ask someone on the road they'll be like yeah he should have got five Nobel Prizes right he didn't he didn't you know for each one of his papers in the in the, the Annus Mirabilis he should have got a Nobel Prize for each one of those it's the pillars of modern physics yeah the guy did relativity and quantum physics yeah. and then you know people were like no relativity is wrong even after uh, you know, they looked at the solar eclipse and saw the uh, the lensing. I mean, th there was a lot of proof. So yeah, you got to fight through the uh, the resistance sometimes, and um, there there it, it's a skill, I guess. It's it, it's a skill because people are gonna be, um, you know, looking down on your work or just constantly saying, "No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong." Um, you gotta have be able to handle that and to keep going, I guess. But does that like? You know, when people are telling you that you're wrong and and that makes you sharpen your own skills, ideally, yeah. that you're like, right. you think right. I'm wrong, I'm going to prove that I'm right, I'm going to go back and I'm right. going to double check, I'm going to fix every single mistake that you identified and right. provide, do even better science. Yeah. So do you think yeah. like just on average, like... Like I can totally get why twenty year old twenty year old coming into this would be like I'm right. Like why won't you people listen to me, right? Yeah. And they're like, yeah. well, yeah. come on, we've been yeah. doing this for a long time, and yeah, and we have a certain amount of wisdom, and you might be right, yeah, yeah. but you're probably not right. So let's just right. start with you're probably not right, yeah. And yeah. And, the, and the scientific method is is encouraging you to take that as well, and to push mm -hmm. through even mm -hmm. though you might be wrong. Or are probably yeah. wrong, right? Right. No, yeah, that's uh, definitely the attitude you need to have as well. You know, whenever you get criticism, the first thing you want to do is to ask yourself and then go through those questions and see if that's going to help you make better work. Um, so definitely, you need that attitude. Yeah, because if you don't, then you're not gonna. Um, you know, if you end up being wrong, then you're not gonna learn from it. 
um, if you don't have that attitude. So that's important. Um, so you know, there, there's a lot of good good criticism out there, and then there's some which is like there's no foundation to it. Those ones you got to kind of. Um, so this is the attitude we needed actually to get this paper published. Um, we you know even with all the uh, very harsh comments from the ref some of you know one of the referees we were like okay you know we're gonna try our best to ad address the comments we, we didn't like argue back or something like that we we're like we'll do our best um to to address the comments and then the editor was like look it's good yeah yeah and it was yeah. in nature astronomy like just like just just so people understand right. like your paper right. was published in nature astronomy which is right you know a pretty good paper right well, I, I think it, people got excited about it because we were like, look, we if we use this uh, wave dark matter model, we can resolve these lensing anomalies that yeah. have plagued the field for decades. Uh, it might be, you know, uh, able to solve anomalies. I want to talk about gravitational lenses because I'm a huge fan of these. I mean, we don't, you know, if, if they're mostly made of dark matter, then we don't know what they are, but we can use them as a telescope, <laughs> which is crazy to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What... What are some of the most, like apart from your work that you just did, what what are the sort of like the best uses of gravitational lenses, do you think? Honestly, yeah, it, gravitational lenses are pretty much cosmic telescopes, right? That's the, the, the phrase we like to use. Um, and really, it's sort of like a magnifying glass. You, you, the way we're using gravitational lensing in our paper uh, and people who study dark matter, it's kind of the the opposite of what you normally do with lensing, it, um, where lensing actually what it does is it lets you see something you could never see if it wasn't lensed. It would it wouldn't be magnified in the sky like a magnifying glass. And then what that lets you do is study the object, you know, that's far away, right? But the, the, what we're doing with dark matter is we're studying the object that's doing the lensing. Right, right. So yeah, it's like right, you're, right? you're it's it's, it's yeah. You're looking through a telescope and you're using the image to figure out whether or not your glass is good or exactly. not. Exactly. Right, yeah. right. That's a good analogy. You're trying to figure out what the mirror of your telescope is. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, lensing does a lot a lot of cool stuff. When, you know, with respect to um, technosignatures, one of the ideas that I had, which I'm working on, is um, trying to find out, you know, trying to look for signatures of wormholes using gravitational lensing. So wormholes have a very distinct signal. They leave behind a distinct signature uh, when they lens something. So it would be different to black holes or galaxies or stars or planets. There, there is a distinct signature. And then if you look, look for the signature in light curves of microlensing, for example, uh, you'd be able to see this. And um, there hasn't been any search for it. Uh, there's a few papers that predict what it should look like. Yeah, I remember. Um, I, I'm, I know we reported on that a couple of years ago that there was uh, some proposals that if there are wormholes, then you would see them through gravitational lensing. Right, right. Um, and then the Event Horizon Telescope in their paper, they also looked at, you know, what if what we're looking at uh, is not a black hole but a wormhole? So they do consider um, different. Um, exotic objects that's what it's called uh but you know with lensing you, what you can exactly like what we we're talking about you can study the lens or you can study the the source um it's kind of like a two-way thing and that that's already incredible because in astronomy usually you just end up studying one object the lensing and what lets is you the do power both. of the lens like you know in terms of magnification 
um, it, it really depends. It really varies. And then uh, some of these galaxy lenses, the magnification can be hundreds in some areas in, in these um, special regions called the, the critical curve. That's sort of where the um, image, a circular image would form. That's what we call an Einstein ring. Um, you know, it can be hundreds, uh, you know, a few tens on average, maybe. But if you looked at, if you were talking about galaxy clusters, then, you know, you can go into thousands. Wow. Um, and then depending on the size of the object, there are some studies that look at uh, backgrounds, you know, stars being lensed. And the magnifications can reach tens of thousands, 50,000. Imagine, you know, something being magnified by 50,000 times. Um, that that would that would be that's insane. That would let you see so far back. Yeah, right? like imagine the Hubble uh, Space Telescope, and then fifty thousand more of them <laughs> bolted right, together. Right. That right, is a big right. telescope. And, and you know, I didn't, I didn't, I forgot to mention this, but lensing is a particularly powerful uh, probe uh, for dark matter, as well as you know, for looking at things because the light just traces the uh, the mass distribution. Uh, you don't have to worry as much about all these interactions and complex things going on in a, in a galaxy, which other people have to worry about. If, you know, if you're talking about, uh, you know, for example, the missing satellite, some people say that um, there's all sorts of, you know, outflows and interactions between dark matter and normal matter. And then if you don't take those into account, then you can't, ex you know, you can't really solve the missing satellite problem. But in lensing, there, there aren't a lot of outs. You can't make a lot of excuses, basically. Um, and that makes it fun because you can't just tweak the knobs and then explain away something. Right. So it's it's a very clean, you know, clean test bed. Like the lens things. shows what it shows. It, it right. Yeah. Right. It shows what it shows. So you can't yeah. mess around um, too yeah. much. I mean, back to that idea of like exoplanets with gravitational microlensing. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's just it's so and I think it's the same thing, right? That you are you are using a foreground star to image a background star, but it is the planets orbiting the foreground star that affect, that cause variations yeah, in peaks. as the lens yeah. is going past. And it's so sensitive that you see these warpings of the brightening, the brightening of the, of the background star that tells you, oh, you know, there's a planet, it has half the mass of Mercury. Oh, second planet, mm -hmm. twice the mass of Jupiter. Oh, third planet, it's a terrestrial planet. Right. And then now we never get to look at the gravitational microlens ever again. Like I hope yeah. we, yeah. I hope we were recording because right. it never comes back. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And it's that sensitive. Like no, the so. most, the mm. in many cases the smallest planets ever seen, are are in these microlensing. The lensing is just is so fragile, and yet right. so sensitive. Right. Yeah, yeah. It you know it you, the these little peaks. <clears throat> the equipment that we have, you know, the technology that humanity has right now, it's 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 sensitive enough that you can see that these these peaks being made, um, and you know that is incredible. It's it's not something you. It's not a conventional way of observing things. What yeah. does it take to de like I guess reconstruct the image that you're seeing from a gravitational lens? Like when when you see say an Einstein ring and it is this mm. blur all the way around the lens. Yeah. Can you turn that back into a picture of a galaxy or can you just get, yeah. you know, are you looking through the smear of a galaxy and you can make some inferences from that? No, you're right. You can turn it back into the image of a galaxy. And then in the field, people call this the source reconstruction. You just reconstruct, 
constructing the uh, source galaxy. But to do this, you need a good lens model. Uh, and by lens model, it just means the mass distribution of the lensing galaxy. Uh, because you, you need to know how to map back the Einstein ring image into the, the original source, right? Um, so you can do that. And, you know, we kind of have to do that for uh, people. Some people doing lens modeling do that. It's just, it's, there's quite a lot of degeneracy involved because it depends on your lens model. So you never really know if what you're, uh, you know, reconstructing is the true, um, is how the true right. galaxy looks. And but so you can you definitely had, do it. If yeah. you had a perfect model of the lens from like really yeah. good observations, right. then you right. could right. perfectly create the object yeah. that's being lensed. Yeah, yeah. And vice versa, if you knew exactly what the object that was being lensed was, you could create the perfect lens model. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Um, and then, you know, that, that's, that's one of the incredible things you can do. So some of the work that, you know, some different work we're doing, we're trying to do this kind of source reconstruction to see what the, um, the, the background galaxy looks like. And you can, you can tell, you can do a lot of science with that. Even, even if you don't know if your lens model is the perfect one, uh, you can do a lot of science with that. You know, you might be able to distinguish between a spiral galaxy and an elliptical galaxy. Uh, you might be able to, you, you will know the size or at least an upper limit on the size. Um, and then, you know, you can, you can do a lot of science with that stuff. Do you, do you think that we will get to the point where you can like see a picture of a spiral galaxy? It looks recognizably like a spiral galaxy as opposed to you know, it has enough signatures that tells you that it's probably a spiral galaxy and not an elliptical galaxy. Like, do you think that, yeah, can we make better lens models? I mean, that would be so cool. I, I, I to my knowledge, I don't think anyone's <laughs> reconstructed a spiral galaxy. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we, we definitely sh should be able to do it. I think, I don't know when, you know, maybe within well, the What decade, would it take uh, to make the best possible lens model? Is it like a, is it a bigger Hubble Space Telescope to make observations on the lensing galaxy? Right. What, yeah, what you would need is a very nice observation of the lensing galaxy. And then usually this gets harder and harder as you go to higher, uh, as you go further away, as you observe things that are further away, because the lensed images start to outshine the lensing galaxy. So it kind of disappears. So um, that might not even... You know, the telescope might might not even matter too much at that point. But if you if you could manage to image something a bit closer, and then yeah, you know, if you had a bigger telescope that really, and then you observe in different wavelengths, so you know, multi wavelength observations, that's what you need. And many lenses don't really have it. You know, some of these, like I said, a handful have radio and optical. But you know, if you could do it in in a wider spectrum, and you really saw all the structure that's going on, then you'd be able to make an incredible lens model at least the data is available. Yeah. I'm um, going to channel some yeah. questions that I've gotten from my viewers for you for a second here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have we ever seen a double lens? Um, by double lens, does that mean uh, there's two background galaxies being lensed by the same foreground galaxy? No, that so there's, there's like, like two two one lens magnifying another lens magnifying something behind that. Oh, like uh, a line and a line and a line? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in a, in a, um, to my knowledge, no, no. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I didn't think so either. I like, I did, uh, I searched through the literature. I couldn't find any examples where you had 
Yeah. I mean, it would be phenomenal, I'm, right? Because then you would I'm, get uh, yeah, 50,000 no. times 50,000 or so, 10, 100 right. times 100. So, so, right. So this is a very interesting question because even if you saw one, you might not know that it's a double lens. You get it? Because mm-hmm. you, you don't know. One thing in lensing is you don't know what the true brightness of the object behind is because it's being magnified by a certain amount, right? And if you don't have an, you know, lens models have a problem where the the magnification, you can change it. Uh, it depends, unless you break it with some uh, some specific observations. So you, you might actually be seeing a double lens, but you might actually not know right. that this image is being double lens. So you could see you, you could see an object and you go that might be a spiral galaxy or it might be the uh, the stadium mm-hmm. of an alien civilization uh, we yeah. can't tell. Right, right. Yeah. So That's you know you, uh, I feel like you might be able to di- help distinguish with um, spectroscopic observations so you need like uh, emission lines and absorption lines so that you could determine um, but th- that's something interesting. I don't think we've ever, I've never come across a double lens situation. Maybe there's one in literature, but yeah, I, it's I, interesting because I, I, you know, yeah, um, right. Okay, so the, I want to other... say that you know, data there's there might be data which has double lenses, but we just don't know how to uh, look, you know, look for them. All right. Well, yeah. you know, I'll yeah. I'll dig up the person who asked me that question, and then you can you can add them as a uh, contributor on your paper when you. When okay. You, yeah. When yeah, you get sure. your Nobel yeah. Prize, um, <laughs> the, um, and then the other one is how dynamic are these, like cosmologically distant gravitational lenses? Like we know the micro lenses change over the course of say a day as the as the stars line up perfectly and you get this flare mm. and then it fades away. How dynamic yeah. are the ones that are at these cosmological distances? Do you see changes over time? Um, Right. So, you know, that that's something interesting that's kind of started to become a hot topic when you talk about galaxy cluster lenses, which is what, you know, the JWST, the first image it released is a, a galaxy cluster with all these incredible lensed images and structures. The two mass uh, And then, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when we look at these galaxy clusters, with better and better observations and, you know, more observations. So you kind of can make like a, like a video, right? Over, over like a decade. Uh, and then you realize these things light up like a Christmas tree. They're, they're pretty much blinking. The lensed image, you know, a, a large lensed image of a, of a galaxy, of a background galaxy. It has little, uh, you know, it, it blinks in certain places along the image. Um, so that, that's, people think that's because of, Microlensing, that's one explanation. But there's also, it could be millilensing, which is just lensing by slightly more massive objects, like these uh, subhalos or the density fluctuations predicted in wave dark matter. Um, so, the, so these things, you know, are, they're lighting up, right? And uh, the, the timescales, uh, these can be months. And like you said, the microlensing can be a few days or weeks. Uh, but if it's millilensing, it could be, you know, months or years. Uh, and then sometimes that, that it could be even longer, sometimes decades. It really depends on the uh, configuration and of, we know, the, of the lens like, system. Like when I know that astronomers look at, say, supermassive black holes and they see the accretion disks around those black holes. And even though they can be hundreds of millions of light years away, you're seeing 
active processes, brightening, dimming on the order of yeah. years, months right. or even years in the in the disk around one of these supermassive black holes. And so you right. could be seeing right. that, but lensed, yeah. or you're actually seeing these mm -hmm. kind of wobbles and warps as the two objects are passing one another from our perspective. Yeah, the, you're incredible. Uh, you should. Be, are you an astronomer? No, 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 no. no it's yeah, just I mean, a that, journalist that, for that's 25 incredible. years. That's, that's all. Uh, you, you, then you should just hop on and you know into our research group because you, uh, you just hit it on the on the on the head because that's what people do uh, when they measure the Hubble constant. You know, for for cosmology, when they when they infer the Hubble constant using lensed quasars, this is this is this is what they do. They track the, you know, they stare at a quasar, uh, at a at a lens quasar. So there's four images, and then they look at the variations in brightnesses of these images, which happens because of uh, the variability in the accretion disk, like you said, which we think. And there's different, there's a time delay, because that, the, you know, when the light reaches you depends on the mass distribution, and then so there's a delay between, you know, all four images don't brighten up at the same time there's a delay and then this delay is what lets you infer the hubble constant um so it's so it's important that you know that this delay is because of the uh variability you know in the accretion disk and not because there's something uh in the lensing galaxy kind of amplifying it and and there's an structures. amazing piece of research where people are watching this super oh sorry the supernova pop off in a in a lensed galaxy and they're seeing it yeah. happen with various delays over the course of right. multiple years. And so you can even right. predict like on this day, we should see the supernova appear in at this portion of the image. Yeah. And, w and we can watch right. the entire cycle. Like right. normally you can't that see supernova. Yeah. You don't know the progenitor of a supernova until after it's happened. Now it's too late. Mm -hmm. But now through this lens, they'll be like, watch here. And you'll see it the whole cycle right yeah it's incredible uh yeah. so one of the people on this paper is one of our collaborators as well and um i don't know if you're talking about the same one but yeah there's one where they predict the image to appear in 2037 or something yeah. like that yeah yeah that, that one so it's incredible it's it's so cool um yeah, just by you know, let's hope people measure. remember what if what if people forget it's like uh <laughs> it's like 14 years later well, you know everyone's gonna be gone you know, this will be after post-singularity. The computers will remember. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy with that. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um, well, if people want to uh, track your work, uh, what's the best place to do that? Um, well, I'm I'm on Twitter, um, I'm and I post about yeah, and I post about our stuff, uh, about our research. Um, that that would really be the best way. Okay. I'm not I'm not too active on on anything yeah. really. Um, and, or, you know, archive. That's the and website then, and then where what, people post. Uh, or nature astronomy. Oh, uh, well, you know, yeah, it may be in a, in a decade. Yeah. What, <laughs> uh, what is the other, um, and, and what's the game you, you mainly play? Oh, I, you know, I play a lot and um, I play Dota too. Okay. I don't know if you know Dota. It's like League of Legends, but yeah. Made, yeah, but, yeah. 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 Dota, so what's your main, what's your, what's your favorite main on Dota 2? My favorite what? What's oh, your you favorite? What's your favorite hero in oh, Dota Two that you play? Hero? Uh, uh, yeah, Juggernaut. You play mainly Juggernaut. Okay, all right. Juggernaut. Yeah, but you know, I play I play a lot of others. But I also play um, Valorant. I don't know it's, if you know mm -hmm. it. It's by Riot. Yep. Um, yep. So these are all competitive multiplayer games. So yeah. I I play. I prefer like, support you know, for personally, but 
Right. But right. That's okay. Yeah. You you, you mean you mean reels for it? <laughs> no support. Like no no like like oh, crystal maiden. You mean you right support? Yeah. Oh, you you yeah. play. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. You know we should play sometime. <laughs> Hell no. I, you know, I, <laughs> Are you crystal, me? Crystal, no way. Crystal Ma- Crystal yeah. Maiden and Juggernaut. You know that's yeah. like the best combo. I you know. know that, I right? know. <laughs> yeah. No way. Yeah. You would. You would. It would be. Yeah. Sure. On the same team. Yeah. But no. Thank you. Um, well, I mean, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I really appreciate I the it. Pleasure and was mine. It was great to talk both about sort of your work, but also uh, the just how great gravitational lenses are. I'm I'm a huge fan. Yeah. And uh, and right. hopefully so many new discoveries will be made from this, including wormholes. Let me know yeah, when that, that, that happens. That would be my dream. Yeah, yeah that I'd sounds be happy great. to take one and then just get out of here. There <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. go. Nobel prizes all around. Yeah, yeah. And then away you go. We'll see you on the other side of the universe. All right. Good well, luck. Thank take you. Care. No, thank you so much, uh, right. Frazier. Um, we'll talk to you later. For, for giving this opportunity. Yeah. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to just Paul Davis, Vlad Shipelin, Jay Dennis, David Gilton, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew Gross, and Josh Schultz who support us at the master of the universe level. All your support means the universe to us. 